Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. I was in the parking lot at Kent State University. This is many years ago, and I just uh, finished visiting with a, a missionary at Kent State, and he was someone that I really admired. He had a very fruitful uh, and thriving ministry, and uh, we, were, we were leaving, and we were by his car, and he said, oh, I, I want to give you something. I want to give you something. And he opened up his trunk, and in his trunk, there was a box of CDs, and they were all the same. He had burned a sermon, and he was in the habit of giving this sermon out to everyone that he met with. So he gave me a copy, and on it was handwritten. You know, we used to burn CDs. On it was handwritten, the blessed rest of self-forgetfulness. And I didn't take that personally. <laughs> but he said, this, this is a sermon that um, every, I think everyone should listen to multiple times. If you look online, you can find it for free. Tim Keller preached it February 24, 2002. It's called Online Blessed Self-Forgetfulness. He's made it into, they've made it into a book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I've listened to that sermon more than any other sermon. I, I couldn't even venture a guess at how many times I've listened to that teaching. It has got under my skin... It's got into my heart, and it is doing miraculous work in me um, that wouldn't otherwise, I'm experiencing transformation that I wouldn't otherwise experience if the truths, if the gospel truths inside of that teaching had never gotten under my skin. It led to a discovery about God that I want to share with you this morning. It's a discovery that has benefited me more than I can imagine. It's helped me get along better with people. It's helped me to sleep better at night. It's helped me to work really hard at the things that I put my hands to without feeling the pressure of making it happen, making life work. It's helped reduce my people-pleasing tendencies dramatically. It's helped me to enjoy other people's successes, sometimes as much as my own. It's quieted the ever-present voice that used to run through my head telling me that I had to constantly prove myself to others. Now, obviously, I'm not doing these things perfectly. I'm very far from it. But when God teaches you a truth and activates that truth in your life through the Holy Spirit, these types of changes are actually realistic. So here's the discovery that led to such dramatic changes. I discovered that it's not my job to exalt myself. It is God's. Merriam-Webster defines exalt as to raise in rank, power, or character, to elevate. It's not my job to raise other people's thoughts about me. It's not my job to exalt myself. I want to read James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. We're going to take this week and then three more weeks, and we're going to be finished with James. If you didn't 
get the sermon notes. They're, gonna, they're available at the welcome desk in the back. And there's also a space in the back of the sanctuary and in the lobby where you can, um, you can punch that with a three-hole punch and put it in your file. If you don't have a three-ring binder, you can grab one of those in the lobby as well. And if we're all out at the end of service, come get me and I'll find you one. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. That's, that's a slight exaggeration, even though Jesus says that hating someone in your mind is as bad as murder. So you desire and you do not have, so you get angry at those who have it. So you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James is a little bit, he can be a little bit more um, sharp than some of the other Bible writers. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is describing someone who is humbling themselves before God. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Father, the same spirit that you gave the people who wrote scripture You've given us that spirit in Christ. The same spirit that you gave James to write wisely about how we might live in the kingdom, you've given that spirit to us. The same spirit that you gave Stephen moments before he was martyred for his faith because he spoke so boldly, you enabled him by your spirit to speak boldly, and you've given us that spirit in Christ. The same spirit that you gave Paul when you radically changed his life from someone who murdered Christians and was an accomplice, accomplice in the murder of Christians to someone who died himself for Christ. The same spirit that caused those radical changes in Paul, you have given us that spirit in Christ. And your spirit is active in us as we're considering and thinking about what you say in Scripture as we read Scripture, to not only understand what you say, but to be transformed by it. So I pray that your spirit in us would be drawing you to Christ this morning and transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look again at verses 1 and 2 and talk about it. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? 
Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Here's your first fill in the blanks. Our obsessive desire to exalt ourselves causes us to tear others down. We see that there is a rift in our relationship with one another when we take it as our responsibility to exalt ourselves instead of leaving that to God. There's a rift any time our self-exaltation is threatened by other people. Very simply, anything that causes you to focus and obsess about yourself is demonic wisdom. Anything that causes you to glorify, focus on God and others is godly maturity. So that means self-pity is a form of demonic wisdom. That means being emotionally fragile is a form of demonic wisdom. That means me feeling like I have to be the center of attention in every room I walk into is a form of demonic wisdom. In our last teaching on James from James 3, we described fights and quarrels as a form of drama. And we talked about when we act with what the Bible describes as wisdom from heaven, it reduces drama. Heavenly wisdom makes an uptight person relaxed, a fragile person resilient. Now remember, one of Satan's goals is to claw and rip us apart. He wants to damage our relationships with one another, especially within the church, so that when the church is starting to make some progress in understanding the gospel and understanding Jesus and what he's, what he's done, one of the prominent strategies that Satan will use always is to begin to create divisions divisiveness, frustrations, little and big frustrations with one another. That's always from Satan. Here's a surefire where to know if we're allowing Satan to distort our thinking. This is in your notes. Demonic wisdom, which is the, the language that James uses in James 3.15, is marked by, one, bitter jealousy. And two, selfish ambition. Those are the two things that James says are demonic. Jealousy is more personal. Jealousy means I don't want you to be exalted over me. Ambition is more general. It means I need to be exalted over everyone. Both of those things are from Satan. And whenever we relate to people out of bitter jealousy or selfish ambition, it's always, always, always destructive to the relationship and to ourselves. So the question is, why do we do this? Here's the subtle temptation. Here's the subtle temptation that... Satan will offer us. The temptation 
is for us to think that true happiness comes from achievement when in fact true happiness comes from loving relationships with other people. And I would say primarily a loving relationship with God, which enables loving relationships with other people. If you believe that happiness, blessedness in life comes from achievement, you'll always need to achieve one more thing. You will never get to the place where you say, I feel great, I've done enough, everything in my life is operating at 100%, it couldn't be better. Believing that our happiness, our blessedness, our joy, our peace in life comes from achievement is like walking around with a fishing pole with a carrot dangling at the end of it. You'll never quite get there. You'll never quite reach it. The thing that's so sinister about bitter jealousy and selfish ambition is that we're actually destroying the very thing that brings us true fulfillment. Because what actually brings fulfillment is a restored and ever-developing relationship with God, which leads to relational harmony with others. When relationships are strained, it doesn't matter how much you achieve, you're still miserable. And we see in this passage that God will not serve as an accomplice in us tearing each other apart in this way. Four, chapter 4, verse 2, the second part of it, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And part of what James means by your passions are those twin motives that drive us away from one another that he speaks about in chapter 3, jealousy and ambition. So how can we get out of this cycle? How can we reverse this cycle towards moving towards one another, moving towards Christ, not acting out of jealousy, not acting out of bitter ambition, the answer is in verses 6 through 10, but he gives more grace. The grace of God poured into your life through the Spirit makes you equal to whatever moment you're facing. However much grace is required in any situation that you're, you're experiencing, God makes that amount of grace available to us in Christ. One of God's plans for us this side of him returning is that we would learn to depend on him so that his grace would abound to us so that we're equal to any moment to anything we face we're not crushed by it and if we're absolutely crushed by whatever we're facing in life then we're not putting ourselves in position to receive grace from God in other words we're focused on us and our situation rather than Jesus and his provision the weaker we are, the more his grace abounds. So, the question is, how do we open ourselves up to receive this grace? And let's keep reading in verse 6. Therefore it says, 
God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be double-minded as you're, you're trying to think that you're seeing your situation, and you're trying to have like one foot in your situation and try to figure it out on your own, and one foot in the kingdom and dependence upon God. You can't do both. You have to, you have, to have both feet in the kingdom, both your complete mind, your, your whole way of thinking focused on God and his kingdom and his provision to help you. If you're, if you're worrying and worrying and worrying about your circumstance or you're worrying and worrying and worrying that you're not being exalted, you, this side of the equation, the ways that God provides for you is deemed helpless, has no power. God can't do anything with half heartedness. We have to have both feet on this side. I know my situation is crazy. I wish that I was the best at whatever, but I'm trusting in God to exalt me in his way and his time, so I don't need to do this. I don't need to worry about it. I don't need to obsess about it. I don't need to build a platform myself. I can just trust in God. You can't go one foot on either side of that. It's all in when it comes to dependence upon God. All in. God loves humility. Verse, verse 8 again, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. God always, always, always responds with favor to the humble person. One of the practices that has become very necessary for me, because humility, some people have a natural virtue of humility. It's just God's, it's just a common grace that God's given you a little bit more humility than other people. I completely skipped out on that line when he was like passing out these natural virtues. I, I got zero of that. Um, and that's not a false humility, that's honest. That is genuine truth. So one of the things that has really began to help me is to sit with this question with God. Where am I not acting out of humility? And just be quiet and listen. And God will surface some things. Sometimes he brings a thought to my life or a scene. Or sometimes he replays a conversation where I was relating to someone out of pride or arrogance. Sometimes he uses people close to me who know me to help me see my pride. We have two options, and there, there isn't a third option. We have two options on how to live. One, exalt yourself and let God humble you, which he will, or two, humble yourself and let God exalt you. Now what will happen if we choose option number one? What if we spend our lives trying to exalt ourselves? 
Well, several things. These are not in your notes, but here's some things that I was thinking about and praying about this morning as I was going over the message. One, we get touchy when someone names something true about us that might not be flattering, and I'm just thinking in my own situation. These are, these are all examples from Greg's heart, Greg's life. I get touchy when someone names something true about me that might not be flattering. But when you see it as God's job to exalt you and your job to humble yourself, you're free to have a sense of humor about yourself. It's a sign of spiritual maturity when someone's able to laugh at how ridiculous they are. And we aren't offended when someone names a painful truth about us because in our heart of hearts we realize, yeah, you see just one tiny little percentage of how bad it really is because my heart is so much worse than that. You think that's what my problem is? I'll take it. If that's the worst of you think, you think of me, I'll take it. Now, we have to be careful with this because we have been made saints. And Paul does call us saints when he's addressing different churches. But we are saints who are still flawed. And whenever we try to hide our flaws, it's always counterproductive. So I've had feedback about my messages. You, you know, you don't, you don't want to always like just share your flaws. Um, you know, you want to keep focusing on, on how good God is. I am focusing on how good God is when I share my flaws. That's, I think that's what Paul meant when he was talking about his weaknesses, God showing his strength through his weaknesses. The point is we are all on journey together and this, there are no experts. We always say this at Southside, there are no experts. There's no one here that has been perfectly sanctified, which means we all need to remain humble and open about our brokenness. If our focus is on exalting ourselves instead of God, allowing God to exalt us, we'll be offended when we feel slighted in any way. If I see it as my responsibility to exalt myself and someone slights me or ignores me, I power up. I bow up. I assert myself. But if I see it as God's job to exalt me, when I get slighted, it just doesn't land. It's one of the ways I know how I'm doing spiritually if I get offended when I'm slighted. If it doesn't land, I don't even barely notice, then I'm doing all right. I'm in a better place. Finally, if our focus is on exalting ourselves instead of allowing God to exalt us, we'll see every conversation, oh, this is me. This is me. I don't even want to read it now that, because this is so me. We'll see every conversation as an opportunity to be interesting instead of being interested. The goal of the Christian conversation is to be interested in other people. We, we think, this is true of all of us, all of us think we are far more interesting than we actually are. You know, the most interesting thing about me is not me, it's God. The most interesting thing about you is not anything you do in this life, in this world, in this place, it's you've been adopted. You were a rebel that had the king of the universe chase after you, and you turned just a little bit towards him, and he ran a million miles to you and put his arms around you. That's interesting. We're not that interesting other than Christ living in us. He makes us interesting. So when, we, when I'm wanting to exalt myself, I'm wanting to exalt the me part of me absent of God. 
when I'm not obsessed with exalting myself, I become interested in other people. Specifically, I become interested in how the Spirit is at work in their lives, whether or not they're in the kingdom yet. The applications for this go on and on. But when we allow God to exalt us in His way, in His time, it frees us to actually enjoy people and enjoy our lives. Um, this is the book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. This is the Tim Keller sermon that was made into a book that I was telling you about. And I want to read a quote from Keller in this book. It's kind of long. It's like a page and a half, but these are little pages. It's really, really good. And he's, he's brilliant. He's with Jesus right now. I'm slightly jealous, but he's left some good material behind. I want to read you. Both low self-esteem and pride are horrible nuisances to our own future and everyone around us. The person who is self-forgetful, who doesn't obsess with exalting themselves, is the complete opposite. When someone whose ego is not puffed up, but filled up, gets criticism, it doesn't devastate them. They listen to it and see it as an opportunity to change. Sounds idealistic? The more we get to understand the gospel, the more we want to change. Friends, wouldn't you want to be the person who doesn't need honor, nor is afraid of it? Someone who doesn't lust for recognition, nor on the other hand is frightened to death of it? Don't you want to be the kind of person when they see themselves in a mirror or reflected in a shop window, they don't admire what they see, but they don't cringe either? Wouldn't you like to be the type of person who, in their imaginary life, does not sit around fantasizing about hitting self-esteem home runs, daydreaming about successes that gives them the edge over others, or perhaps you tend to beat yourself up and to be tormented with regrets. Wouldn't you like to be free of them? Wouldn't you like to be the skater who wins the silver and yet is thrilled about those three triple jumps the gold medalist did? To love it the way you love a sunrise. Just to love the fact that it was done. It doesn't matter whether it was their success or yours. Wouldn't you love not to care if they did it or you did it? You're as happy that they did it as if you had done it yourself because you're just happy to see it. That's the potential of the gospel. That's the potential of resting from exalting ourselves and allowing God to do that for us in his time and in his way. Jesus himself tells us this. He gives us this commandment. In Luke 18, 14, he says, for everyone who exalts himself, actually, rather, this is a promise from Jesus. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So James didn't make that up. He got that from the guy that made us. And then Jesus went on and lived it. Because Jesus isn't just an instructor, a teacher, he's a model and he's not just a model, he's the empowerer of our process of transforming to be more like him. Paul in Philippians 2, 8 through 11 describes how Jesus modeled 
this, hum, this humility that allowed the Father to exalt him. In Philippians 2, 8 through 11, he, it, Paul says, in being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The name that is above every name. One of my seminary professors gave this beautiful illustration that has stuck with me. And I've used it before here, but it's just so good. He says, here's how we think we grow self-esteem. The world teaches us that if you want to grow your sense of self, your sense of power, self-agency, you have to be able to walk into a room and be the best at something. That's what the world tells us. You have to be able to walk into a room and be the best at something. So for me, I felt like when I was younger, I need to walk into a room and I need to be the best basketball player. Maybe you need to walk into the room and be the best at what you do at work. Or maybe you need to walk into a room and you need to be the best musician. Or maybe you need to walk into the room and be the person that everyone goes to when things fall apart in their life. Or maybe you, you need to walk into a room and be the person that gives the best advice. Or maybe you need to walk into a room and be the person that listens the best. You just need to be the best at something. My seminary professor said, when Jesus walks into the room, he walks into a room of kings and he's the king of kings. Jesus is the best in every room. And he's given... Jesus is the name above every name, and he's given that name to us. So why are you exalting yourself? Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.